You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar Sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The most gifted physical specimen I've ever seen. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. When you get out of the hospital, <laughs> let me back into your life. I can't stand what you do. I'm in love with your eyes. And when you get out of the dating floor, I'll be here to get back into your life. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. The name of that song is hospital it's a song from the early 70s from a group called modern lovers that's jonathan richmond singing but the other member of that band is jerry harrison who started with jonathan richmond and ultimately joined the talking heads why would i be playing that song why would rebecca be playing that song because jerry harrison went to harvard became an incredible musician the Talking Heads changed the world with new wave music. And the reason we're playing it is because my guest at 815 is a young surgeon at Cedars doing hip and knee replacements, really complicated ones, named Dr. Sean Raji. And I'm going to be talking to him at 815. And he trained at Harvard. And it made me think all week. I love the world of art. I love the world of sports. And I love my world of surgery. What exactly does it mean to go to Harvard? You're already smart. Harvard don't make you smart. What does it do to you? What it does is it makes you confident in who you are, whatever it is that you're going to do. And what does confidence do for you? It allows you to take risks in whatever you do for a living. You don't necessarily have to go to Harvard to be confident. You don't have to go to Harvard to take risks, but it really is beautiful to watch when someone does take a risk in their life. Let's listen to Jerry Harrison, the musician. First of all, listen to how he uses words. You could tell he is smart, but you'll also appreciate how much he sees in music, in his world of risk-taking. Let's go to Talking Heads Naked, number two. One tries not to ever lose totally your own innocence. Um, I think it's something that I've worked at in the Talking Heads, because I think that once you lose that, then everything becomes kind of cynical. But um, I think that I've always been trying to challenge myself. I mean, whether it be the groups I play with or the groups I produce, I mean, I, if you look at the groups I've produced, I've really done them just because they were like exciting challenges and really different. One of the, the groups he produced was No Doubt with Gwen Stefani. He produced them. Let's listen to number three. I think that what used, used to be and what still makes rock and roll when it's working right, exciting, is when it has a little bit, it has that sense of risk. 
where you really don't know quite what's going to happen, where people kind of are, you know, they're taking all of their talent and all of their, um, uh, you know, inspiration at that moment and going out there on that limb and it might fall apart or it might be really something great. And that's what, when it, and when, why I don't like a lot of music is when it's so careful. Anyway, that's what I like in music is I like that sense of risk. It's what I like in art and what I like in people. You know, it's people that are willing to, oh, just take a chance with their lives a little bit. So Jerry Harrison, after the Talking Heads, decides, like David Byrne, the lead singer, to have a solo career. So Jerry Harrison writes a song, creates an album called Casual Gods. What he puts on the cover is the most interesting album cover I've ever seen. It's of gold mine workers in Brazil digging deeply into the earth all day for the chance that maybe they will find a fleck of gold in the gold mine. Just like what built California, the 49ers, gold does something to, to people that they literally drop what they're doing, school teachers, lawyers, doctors. When they discovered gold in San Francisco in 1849, people just dropped what they were doing and ran to the mines, to the streams. Hope. So Jerry Harrison does a, an album called Casual Gods. This is the picture he puts on the cover of his album. Listen to him trying to explain it, but you'll appreciate he's smart. He's a risk taker, confident. Let's listen to number one, Talking Heads Naked. The first thing that I noticed about your solo album, your second one, Casual Gods, was the cover of the record. These Brazilian men that are digging for gold in these huge cavernous pits, thousands of them just carrying bags of dirt for their whole life up and down these, these mountains. How did, you, how did you decide to use that for a cover? I think in the end when you look at that, it's somehow like not a great thing. But they're in yet at the same time, there is something inspiring about people that they that people that people will work that hard for that hope. People will work that hard for that hope. That's Kobe Bryant working that hard for that hope. Mm. Let's listen to Jerry Harrison more. He joins this group, Modern Lovers, a punk rock group, because of hope that he can make it in the music business. Takes a risk joins a group that pretty much is probably not going anywhere, but at least it gets his foot in the door. Hearing his story is fascinating. Let's go to number one, Jerry Harrison in studio. Because you was in the, the Modern Lovers. That's right. That was early. That was like 72. That, that was right. We recorded the, the album that people know in 1972, though. I don't think it was released till kind of the border of 74, 75, because they were demo tapes for Warner Brothers and A&M, that Berserkly Records right. kind of got the rights to them and and put out. But that was, it's funny because it was not economically a very good deal for me, but it's the reason that the people in the Talking Heads knew I existed. So it was one of, the, so one of the worst contracts I signed was one of the best. Yeah, yeah. He took a risk, got his foot in the door, and that got him known. The Talking Heads, as they're starting, go there's that guy from Modern Lovers. Let's get him to rehearse with us. 
Let's go to number two. In some ways, I say that we are the the beginning of what I would call punk rock. I mean, there was obviously the Velvet Underground and the Stooges before us. The Dolls were what came after that. The Dolls, well, the Dolls, no, the Dolls were contemporaries of the Modern Lovers, but I think of them as sounding like the Stones. I don't think of them as right. being uh, punk rock. Right. Um, I mean, Jonathan had this idea of everything should be short and sweet and to the point, and it was all about getting his message account with, uh, across. And to me, that's the essence of punk rock is I may not play really well, but I will find a way to express what I want to express one way or the other. Yeah. Being smart going to Harvard don't make you the best musician, but it makes you a risk taker. Let's go to number three. Suddenly all the musicians had gone to musical school or the academy and stuff like that. And so the modern lovers, is we did... We weren't very. Uh, we didn't have a great deal of expertise on our rec- on our uh, instruments, but we knew what sound we wanted, and we knew what we wanted to get across. Yeah. Now he takes you to his dorm room at Harvard, way back to the beginning. Andy Warhol's an influence. Actually, he met Andy Warhol. Number four. They all wandered into my apartment with Jonathan one day, so I decided to put his music in my film. And so I'm playing it over and over again, thinking about how it would fit in the edit. And Ernie Brooks, who was my roommate and became the the Modern Lovers bass player, he goes, this is actually really quite interesting. And then Jonathan would come over. And so we just ended up basically quitting school, though we, much to my parents' uh, chagrin at the time. and But later I did find a way to graduate. Uh, and we joined the band. And it gets even more interesting. How does he get hooked up with Talking Heads? Number five. It was a trio when I joined, and they wanted to expand. And actually, it's a funny story. Um, they got in touch with me. Steve Paul, who had, had Steve Paul's scene and managed the Winter Brothers and Rick Derringer, had recommended me to them, and someone else had. And the, that Modern Lovers record had come out, so they were aware of it. So they called me up, and... I was so broke. I was living in Boston. So the only way I could come to the rehearsal is I helped Ernie, as I mentioned before. We still had the band van move a family to New York. Mm. Let's do number six. So we moved their furniture, (laughs) and as it worked out, there was no room once we got all their furniture in the van for the keyboard. So I showed up with a guitar, and they go, we were looking for a keyboard player. I thought you played keyboards. I go, I do, but... There just wasn't room in the van, but I'll play guitar tonight. <laughs> and they were like, this is insane. But it just sounded so good that we just went. We, I think we all knew it was, was going to really work. He's learned how to take risks, show up with a guitar when they're looking for a keyboard player, and it worked. And finally, number seven. Is he talented? David, David Byrne. Uh, extremely. The singer. Naturally. Uh, singer. Yeah. He has, uh, well, he has a... You know, he has his unusual and kind of quirky sensibility about what he looks at and how he, uh, life. And he's able to then write lyrics that reflect these sort of off-kilter views of everyday life. And I think that it really does illuminate something about something you might have looked at a thousand times. And then you go like, I never quite looked at it like that. Is he like an intellectual? You never, you never hear about. Yes, him I mean, he's, a, he's a self-taught intellectual. Yeah. He's a self-taught intellectual that Jerry Harrison hitched his wagon to, took the risk, 
He was smart enough to know to take the risk. All right. What about in sports? Where do we see Harvard? Smart people taking risks. Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, currently his team, because in 15, a 15 year career, starting in 2005, he's played for eight different teams. He went to Harvard. Nobody thought he would amount to anything, but he's got a lot of NFL records. One of them is he's the only quarterback to throw a touchdown for eight different teams. He's the only quarterback in NFL history to have three 400-yard games in a row. But he's most known for the fact that he's the smartest guy to ever play football as a quarterback because he got almost a perfect score on the IQ test called the Wonderlick test. And only Trey Wingo could somehow connect the dots and teach us that if it wasn't for Ryan Fitzpatrick, Patrick Mahomes would not be in the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl because it's Ryan Fitzpatrick and the Dolphins last year who beat Tom Brady and knocked him out of going there. So let's listen to Ryan Fitzpatrick with Trey Wingo, number one. Have the Chiefs sent you bouquets of flowers yet? Steaks. They, well, they, they, uh, have they? Because not the organization. Yeah, but but some, some people have chimed in because if people forget, Ryan Fitzpatrick leads the Dolphins to a win at Foxborough week 17 on a game-winning touchdown with what, like 40 seconds left or something like that? Yeah, something, something like, like that. That. Yeah. that gave the Chiefs the, the bye in the two seed. Otherwise, they would have been the three seed. Much more difficult to get to the Super Bowl in the three seed. So really, while we all rave about Patrick Mahomes, the only reason the Chiefs are here is because of Ryan Fitzpatrick. It is impressive. And Mike Golick Jr. wants to know, how do you do this? What's in your head? The risk-taking, it's there because of his smarts, the confidence he got because he went to Harvard. Let's listen to number two. How the hell was this season? Like, you came to a place that with everyone in the outside world says is tanking. No one expects you guys to do anything. And you go out there and you win and you know, many more games than the rest of the public was going to give you credit for. What was it like being on the inside of all that? Uh, yeah, the first two games, it was historically bad, you know, with Baltimore and New England. Uh, thank you for this schedule set up like that. And, uh, you know, then I get put on the bench and we, there's three more games and we're sitting at 0 and 5 and I get reinserted back in and then we're sitting at 0 and 7 and it was a crazy roller coaster at the beginning of the year that had a lot more dips on the down than up and, uh, it took a lot. It showed a lot for Brian Flores as a head, first time head coach to keep the team, to keep us interested, uh, you know, to keep the intensity and the practices, you know, at a high level and even the attention level of the guys uh, to finish five and four like we did in the last nine games. How does a guy from Harvard even end up in the NFL? That's never supposed to happen. Let's listen to the evolution of Ryan Fitzpatrick, number one. Going into the 2005 NFL draft, the quarterback class had some standout guys. Jason Campbell, Aaron Rodgers, and Alex Smith, all potential first-round picks. But when we take a look into one particular category, the Wonderlick test, there was a major outlier. The Wonderlick is a 50-question exam. However many you get right, that's your score. The average score is about 20. You only get 12 minutes to answer all 50 questions. Only 2-3% to of participants even finish the test in that time. In other words... It's tough. That's the IQ test that every NFL player has to take. Number two. 
Some of the best NFL quarterbacks score right around the mid-30s, or maybe even a bit higher. In this class, we saw Rodgers at 35 and Alex Smith at 40. They're both pretty smart guys. Then there's the dude from Harvard, who finished the test in nine minutes. Ryan Fitzpatrick has the highest score by any quarterback in NFL history. This man was not like the others. Although he did win Ivy League Player of the Year in 2004, he majored in economics at Harvard. If there was one thing that I would guess about a Harvard grad, a career in the National Football League would not come to mind. Next. Late in the seventh round of the 2005 NFL Draft, the St. Louis Rams thought, why not, and drafted Ryan Fitzpatrick. He was going to be their third-string quarterback. In other words, he shouldn't even sniff the field. The Rams probably thought, it's a quarterback from Harvard who nearly scored a perfect 50 on the Wonderlic. Let's just bring him in to pick his brain. There's no way he's actually going to get into a game, though. Week 6. First stringer Mark Bolger would injure his right shoulder, promoting Jamie Martin to the starting quarterback. And, of course, he gets injured. And as the third stringer, once again in his career, he becomes the starter. Number 4. In steps, the third stringer from Harvard, with no expectations, down by 21. Ryan Fitzpatrick would throw for 310 yards and three touchdowns, finishing the game in overtime with a 54-yard walk-off touchdown. Rams win, 33-27. And Ryan Fitzpatrick was named NFC Offensive Player of the Week. He's one of only seven quarterbacks ever to throw for 300 yards in their debut. Unbelievable, right? He... He's a risk taker, number five. He would get benched after the Vikings game and didn't see the field again the following season in 06 and in 2007 was traded for a seventh rounder to the Bengals to be their backup. Carson Palmer, who had started 48 straight games going into the season, would get hurt and Fitzpatrick became the guy in Cincinnati. There, he would do good enough to be sent to Buffalo and Fitzpatrick would spend more time there than with any other team. But this is when his moments of brilliance enter, number six. Four years. Although it wasn't planned, he was mostly the starter. And this was his time to prove that he could be a consistent starter in this league. He would flash moments of brilliance. During 2010, he became the first quarterback to be down by 17 points, come back, and win by 18 points or more. In 2011, he was named AFC Player of the Month after starting the season on a tear. And following that, the Bills were like, you're the guy. Here's a six-year, $59 million contract. Harvard don't make you smart. You're already smart, but it gives you the confidence to be in a room, whether it's the NFL game room in front of a bunch of musicians trying to create punk rock and new wave music or being in the operating room. When you have that confidence combined with being smart because you went to Harvard, great things can happen because you're willing to take risks. And we'll get into it talking to someone who trained at Harvard, the great Dr. Sean Raji, coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend Warriors Show, presented by Cedar sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I'm still quelling. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN. 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. 
That's Talking Heads, Take Me to the River, better known as the head of the Charles in Boston, Cambridge, which my next guest knows a lot about. I'm joined now by one of my favorite young surgeons at Cedars who trained at Harvard, the great Dr. Sean Raggi. Sean, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Dr. Clapper, thanks so much for having me. It's always great listening to your show and uh, being able to join you for it. I really appreciate it. So let's let's teach the audience because they're excited to meet you. Who are you? Where did you grow up? What did your dad do for a living? Why go to medical school? And of all things, why did you pick orthopedic surgery? All right. I should, I should take out my uh, personal statement for medical school right now. <laughs> So uh, my name is Dr. Sean Roger. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in a town called Arcadia, uh, close to Pasadena area. Mm-hmm. Grew up there, was uh, really big in music growing up. I was a drummer. I was a pianist. Um, in fact, I, I loved producing music uh, in, my, in my younger years, and that was a, a big hobby of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, over the years, I got exposed to... Uh, the world of medicine through um, through my father and through his his uh, he was in the business of of, of medicine and entrepreneur in the field of radiology um, hmm. within the Los Angeles network kind of um, and so I got exposed to medicine through that way it really intrigued me it really uh, I really uh, loved uh, whenever I met a doctor and understood how they could heal people that that power was just really exciting to me and, and I really uh, I looked up to that so. That inspiration was always there. Uh, meanwhile, I kept my um, my music passion alive. In fact, when I went to UCLA uh, for college, I actually went there as a music major. I I auditioned <laughs> in percussion. I you know played the rimba, the timpani, and it was the lead timpanist of the LA Philharmonic at that time who was leading the music program. And 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 that's that's what what got me there to UCLA, and I loved it. And you know, it was hours of daily practice. I did the marching band, um, you know, the UCLA football, and, you know, halftime was game time at that point for us. <laughs> wow. Um, and so that was a good time. And, you know, right around that point in college, in the first year or two, I, I made a, a decision that was, while I really loved the music, I didn't want to let go of that other passion I had to pursue medicine. So I put my focus more towards the pre-medical path, did the biology courses, the physics courses, the chemistry <laughs> courses, started to see how I can dive into that field more. And the more I did, a little, little bit at a time, um, that started to develop even further. And, and, and I saw that I was good at it. And in general, I was more of a um, the, the, the science type of person in class. I enjoyed the tests. I didn't enjoy writing the papers. So, <laughs> The, the education was sort of lining up with me at that point. I did some research and basically started to go down the path. I mean, we, I got prepared for the MCAT. I ended up getting a, a Master's of Science in Global Medicine um, at USC uh, because I had an interest in public health and I wanted to spend a little bit more time figuring out, making sure this is the right track for me. Ultimately, uh, I applied to medical school and went to Tufts. Uh, University School of Medicine in Boston. Hmm. That's where my uh, experience in in Boston uh, really started. Hmm. And I, I spent four years there uh, doing doing the whole medical school path. Really met some amazing people. I mean, 
being going from L.A. to Boston is one of the best things I could have done in my education and mm-hmm. uh, in my uh, getting all the experience I have today. And so that was fantastic. I really learned a lot and got exposed to orthopedics during my time there. And I got involved with the student groups. We had a orthopedic student group there. We did a lot. I did a lot of research projects. And, you know, when it came to the cadaver lab, and, you know, as, as, as people don't know this, a, a, a large portion of medical school is, is being in the cadaver lab. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we thank all the people who donate their bodies for us to be able to, to learn um, the anatomy that we need to. But it was the joints that always interested me. It was when we got to the knee and the hip and understanding mm-hmm. the different parts of it, the bone to the cartilage and and it made sense to me. It was always something a little less abstract. Uh, in general, I like being a little bit more, uh, as much as I can be, uh, identifying things that are more black and white as mm-hmm. opposed to trial and error. And, and so that, that part of the, uh, of the field was uh, matched my personality. I could see it on the x-ray. I could, I could see it on the MRI. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you, I could touch it. I could see it. And so mm-hmm. being able to have all that made sense to me. And I said, oh, I, I understand this. I can fix this. I can help people. And that really took me down the path of applying to orthopedic surgery. And at that point, um, there's a, a process where you apply to orthopedic surgery residency, whereas it's, it's sort of a match system, meaning you go interview with 10 or 15 places. And I went and did that. And I had a strong application. Um, because of all my research and and it was it was exciting it's basically going there you selling yourself to them them selling yourself to you and then everyone makes their list of one through 15 and uh, meaning I make my top choices from one to 15 the programs make their applicants and then a computer system matches it all together mm. and um, at that point I uh, I really uh, I really like Cedar Sinai's uh, program, although it was a very young program, yep. and uh, I decided to take on that risk uh, of, 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 cha- of taking this newer program because mm-hmm. I really saw the potential. I came there for my residency in orthopedic surgery. I spent five years there. During mm. that time there, um, you know, I came back a year later. I, I got married uh, here in Los Angeles, and so that was that was definitely an exciting moment for me, um, and that's been definitely part of my success throughout this time, being married. I have a little daughter now, and so mm. having that alongside my orthopedic um, endeavors has been really uh, fantastic. Then at Cedar sinai I got to work with people like yourself, Dr. Robert Clapper, Dr. Brad Tannenberg, Fitzer, mm-hmm. Guy Paymont, a lot of people that showed me how to take on the challenges of joint replacement, taking these mangled joints of people Mm -hmm. who just want to be able to get that quality of life back. And honestly, to be able to give people that active lifestyle they want back is, is, is really satisfying. And so that's what drove me to go into hip and knee replacements and hip and knee arthritis and finding the best solutions for people, whether it's non-operative or operative. And at that point in my career, I had another decision to make. Because, you know, every five years or a few years, we, 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 we're at this another landmark where we have to do something else to take it to the next level. And that was to, to really get a, a specialization within orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery. And well, that's what I, I want decided. to get into. So save yeah. that. I'm going yeah. to have you stay on the line because that's so many things about you fascinate me. But I want to know, 
what that moment was like when you're walking around at Harvard. Take me back to the first day where you're pinching yourself going, oh, my God, I'm going to be able to say for the rest of my life that I trained at Harvard. So think about that. We're going to take a break. We're going to pay some bills. And we, when we come back, I need to hear what that was like for you to kind of explain what must have gone through the head of Ryan Fitzpatrick in the NFL and Jerry Harrison with Talking Heads. What does Harvard mean? Because you're already smart, but what does it do to a smart person? So hang on. Weekend Warriors, we'll pay some bills. We'll come back. We'll talk, we're talking to the great Dr. Sean Rajay from Cedar sinai I'm having so much fun. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show presented by Cedar sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. That's right. Mahalo. Aloha. Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Ahui hoy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN. 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's the Talking Heads. David Burns singing. They're playing right next to him. On keyboard is the great Jerry Harrison, who went to Harvard. A super smart guy. Let's listen to what Jerry Harrison feels about rock and roll. A smart guy who went to Harvard, but he's learned to be confident and to be able to take risks. Listen to Talking Heads Naked, number three. I think that what used used to be and what still makes rock and roll when it's working right, exciting, is when it has a little bit, it has that sense of risk, where you really don't know quite what's going to happen, where people kind of are, you know, they're taking all of their talent and all of their, um, uh, you know, inspiration at that moment and going out there on that limb and it might fall apart or it might be really something great. And that's what when it, and when, why I don't like a lot of music is when it's so careful. Anyway, that's what I like in music is I like that sense of risk. It's what I like in art and what I like in people. You know, it's people that are willing to, oh, just take a chance with their lives a little bit. And Rebecca, let's play Jets quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, number three, about repping Harvard University in the NFL. I think being a, a chameleon in that way helps me. You know, being being a Harvard graduate, there's definitely a certain amount of pride that I take in that as well, and want to be able to represent the university in the right way. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely um, some misconceptions about uh, Harvard graduates, and we all kind of get lumped into the same category. The great Dr. Sean Rajay, Sean, take us back. It's your first day of fellowship, and you're walking on the campus. Are you just pinching yourself? Take us back to that first day of being at Harvard. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good question, Dr. Clapper. You know, it's, I think back to when it hit me that, okay, here you are. You're about to go to Harvard. You're about to spend some time with some of the pioneers of orthopedic surgery, the, 
the, the teachers of my teachers, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the people that trained me back in Cedar sinai did got taught from these guys and they were mm-hmm. from Boston. And, and that was part of the inspiration for me to go there. I said, Hey, let me go to where, you know, where, where a lot of this stuff started and, and try mm-hmm. to, and try to get it from the original source. And so it didn't hit me like, like you said, until I got there and, I got there. I remember I had to, you know, walk in Brigham and Women's is one of the Harvard hospitals. Um, but I knew I could do it, and I and obviously I had the confidence going into this. But it, it definitely made me think. It, it, you know, for a few moments, it did make me uh, have be a little nervous, maybe have some doubts. And did I? Oh, am I going to be okay? Do I? Do I remember all the things I need to in regards to? Uh, the uh, this procedure or those questions or those articles and a lot of these things started to rush through my head, hoping that I'm not going to disappoint anyone here as uh, as a, a what we call a, a new fellow coming in. And so I, I got in. I started to meet the meet people and, and figuring out uh, the hospital. Uh, let me tell you. Figuring your way around a new hospital is 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 honestly like uh, going to a maze. It is. It took about two weeks for me not to be five minutes uh, behind on getting anywhere, just because I took three wrong elevators and three wrong hallways, and so there was there was a lot of growing pains in navigating the environment. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I did what I always do best, which is try to really get to know people from the doctors to the assistants to the scrub techs to the janitors to figuring out and try to get myself into this community and accept it in this community as soon as possible. And and that really helped because as soon as I found some some people that were close to me in that way, they, they kind of helped me um, get uh, get embraced. And let me tell you, all of the concerns I had about Harvard, which getting there about not being ready for it, those were, you know, within a month or so, I'd say those were the wrong concerns to have. In fact, they weren't worried about nitpicking me on any individual specific questions on did you learn this and did you learn that. But I learned that they were there to to really teach me that, hey, these this is how you need to think about surgery, and we want you to be able to think and process and handle any situation. And mm. and it was those tools that really the place started to instill in me. And and some of those old pioneers were still there. One of them is Thomas Thornhill. He's been around mm-hmm. for a long time. He's, he's really contributed a lot to orthopedic surgery. And he had a weekly conference that I started to attend to. And then all of a sudden he turned from this um, – guy I knew and in, in, in published in the research and at conference to a mentor, to someone I started talking to on a weekly basis, someone who started to tell me some of the best jokes that I've ever heard uh, because he was such a funny guy. And those relationships start, became um, some of the things I will always be appreciative for from my time there. Well, it doesn't make you smarter to be there. You're already smart, but it gives you confidence so that when you can come back and be a young attending and actually have your own patients now to take care of, you now have that confidence. You're already smart, but you now have the confidence to be able to sit in the room and, and what do they say? Drop the mic. Nobody can mess with you. Your knowledge is there, but your confidence certainly 
gets even higher because you went to that place, Harvard, to train. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, and, and they do push you to get your confidence up, and they do that by challenging you. And that, mm-hmm. and that challenge really did take my confidence to another level. I mean, yeah. they, they have conferences and surgery. They would ask you questions, and they wouldn't just want you to answer necessarily the way they do it. Mm-hmm. They wanted you to answer with what you would do. And then if you did suggest something different, and that's one of the things I learned at Harvard, there are a lot of different ways to do something right. And mm-hmm. things aren't as black and white as maybe some people might think. There, You can do it this way, mm-hmm. you can do it that way, but you should understand why you're doing it and mm-hmm. you know, have a reason for it. Is, there, is it a scientific reason? Is it a logical reason? Is it a reason specific to that individual patients and needs or anatomy and and as long as you supported that decision they they would they would accept the answer but if you if you stated a reason to do something when you were asked and put on the spot and it was just based on something that you know you thought was the right answer in the book a while ago they would challenge you and and let you know why you were wrong and mm-hmm. and and that experience was was really valuable because sometimes you need to be put down a little bit in order to mm-hmm take it to the next level. And, and, and that, you know, it wasn't just only positive reinforcement. They, they did tell you when you were wrong and, mm-hmm. and, and you, you felt bad about that. And so you, you made sure that the next time you had five reasons before going mm-hmm. into the surgery for what you wanted to do. Exactly. Well, I can just tell you, I'm so proud of you. I'm sure they're so proud of you. And this is only the beginning of it all. But I suspect the person who's the most proud of you, is your dad. So happy Father's Day to him because he's created a surgeon that we can all be proud of. And happy Father's Day to you coming up because of the little girl that you have. I want to thank you so much for making time to be with us. You've brightened everyone's day. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Clapper, for having me on the show. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day you're going to be calling me Roger Magic, just like Pitts Magic. Huh? <laughs> I am already. And, uh, Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. All right, have a good day. Really appreciate Take it. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That's the great Dr. Sean Rajay from Cedar sinai Great young thinker mine and a great young surgeon. I'm proud to be at Cedars to have people like that working alongside me. All right. Coming up next, the clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show presented by Cedar Sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. What? Who are you? What did you just say? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. He's chiseled out of marble. He's got 48 chest and a 32-inch waist. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. You're listening to the Talking Heads. Wow. 
New wave music from the 70s. They changed it all. The keyboard player, Jerry Harrison from Harvard. And that has been today's topic. Being smart is not enough. Being confident and taking risks because you know you're smart is the key. And I want to thank again Dr. Sean Rajay from Cedars for calling in. And I also want to thank Amanda and Greg from the station for having the foresight to give the Kamenetsky brothers, both Andy and Brian, who follow us now on Saturday here on ESPN, their own show. I'm so excited to have the Weekend Warriors go right into listening to the Cam brothers. I've been at the station for 10 years, and they have been such an inspiration for me all these years. They're smart, they're funny, and it's a great idea to have them on on Saturday after the Weekend Warriors show. So congratulations to them, and uh, I'll be listening just like all of you. It's really great times. Um, next week, my guest, our guest, because I'm doing this with you, the Weekend Warrior Nation, is the owner of Philippe's, which has got to be one of the greatest restaurants ever, and it happens to be in Los Angeles, near Union Station, the train station, because this is where the original French dip sandwich came from. Go watch the Food Channel. Who's bigger than Wolfgang Puck? There's a show called The Best Thing I Ever Ate. What was the topic? Sandwiches. There is Wolfgang Puck going, you know what my favorite sandwich is of all time? It's the French dip sandwich at Philippe's. My mouth is watering already because this, you got to stand online to order the sandwich. You can have turkey. You can have beef. I think you can have lamb, but I'm not having lamb. But you can have turkey. I can never stop myself from ordering one of each, which is really not a good idea, but I did. I do. Anyway, Rich Binder, who's a big fan of the Weekend Warriors show, is coming on as my guest. And I cannot wait to talk to him about all things that are dipped. And I've been thinking already, where in art, where in sports, <laughs> do you see the French dip? Wait till you th- wait till you hear what I'm going to come up with. I'll give you a clue. It involves Benjamin Franklin, one of the fathers of our country. And it also will involve Arnold Palmer. And it's not about the drink with the lemonade and the iced tea. Wait till you hear what I come up with as the French dip in the world of art and the world of sports. I can't wait till next week. I can't wait to put the show together already. And I will tell you, my neck hurts a little bit, but not from a disc, but from muscles. Because last Sunday, I went surfing, like I do every Sunday. And I was way outside, meaning farthest to the horizon of all the guys who were in the water. Why? Because Duke Kahanamoku used to say, when you paddle far out, you're waiting for the bluebirds to come. That's how he used to refer to the biggest waves of the sets that would come in, the bluebirds. I always thought that was such a beautiful way to describe the ocean. And I also hear Duke Kahanamoku's voice in my head because as I'm out there on my surfboard waiting for God to send the waves, you can get frustrating. Where are they already? It's not like you flip a switch in your house to turn the lights on. 
There's no one who has a switch to turn the wave machine on. You have to wait. It teaches me to be patient. Duka Hanamoku used to always say, don't worry, the waves will come. And just hearing that phrase calms me down. Well, there I was, further out than anybody. I'm waiting for the wave of the day. And all of a sudden, I look out on the horizon. The sun really hasn't risen yet. It is truly dawn. It is called, if you look at the calendar, first light. It's not called sunrise. It's dawn. It's first light. So it's dark. And I see out in the distance a two-story apartment building starting to form in the water. And this wave's getting closer and closer. And it's going to now hit the reef that allows the wave to break. And I can feel my chest starting to pound because I see it's coming. And it's going to be breaking just for me, even though there's other guys in the water. It's going to be breaking just for me. This is going to be my wave. I turn my board. I start paddling. And you feel the hand of God tap you on the shoulder and go, you can stop paddling now. I got this. Get your hands, get your feet, get your knees, get yourself up. And so I paddle, 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 and I feel just like a roller coaster where you feel the engagement of the roller coaster to the bottom of the cart to take you up the top of the roller coaster. That's what it feels like when the wave engages your board. You, you feel it. You bring your hands right out of the water. And I stood right up on the wave, except this wave decided to hit the reef a little harder than it was supposed to, for me at least, and broke, boom, right away. There wasn't a time for me to kind of glide down the face of the wave. It broke right away. It's called a late a late takeoff. So I had to stand up immediately because it was already going to break. Paddle, paddle, boom, I stood up. And in that fraction of a second, the nose of my board was not set properly for my feet to engage the board. And what did I do? I did a somersault off the front of my board. But because it was such a big wave and the force was so great, I did a somersault under the water after the one I did entering the water. I did another one entering the water, which is why it is so powerful for me in my life to surf. Because I, we all need to be taught the lesson that you're just visiting here. This is, this is the planet Earth. This is the mother ocean. And you're just visiting. Stop being so full of yourself. So when that ocean throws me around, it's a great reminder. It also teaches me patience. It teaches me lots of things. So I didn't just do one somersault. I did two with my whole body weight under the water in the ocean. Fortunately, the board didn't land on top of my head. But let me tell you, all week, turning to the right, turning to the left, I could feel it. And because I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I can tell you which muscles exactly were hurting. It was the sternocleidomastoid muscle. <laughs> and why is it called the sternocleidomastoid muscle? Well, I'm going to tell you. And if you feel your neck right now, those two muscles on the side of your throat 
There's a right and a left one that allows you to rotate, just like the hamstrings are diagonal muscles that allow you to rotate. Remember Matt Kemp used to always have ham puig. They had hamstring injuries because those muscles are diagonal that allow the hitter to get the power to hit the baseball because they're diagonal. When they fire, they twist the body. Well, what twists your neck is the sternocleidomastoid muscle. The mastoid is really the muscle, I mean the bone, right near your ear, below your ear. Well, it originates from your skull right in that area. That's the mastoid bone. And then it goes to the sternum, right, your your uh, chest bone. And clido in Latin means uh, clavicle or collarbone, the sternocleidomastoid muscle. They were hurting and sore all week long because of that double, double somersault that I did on Sunday. But you know what? It's so worth it because I got reminded yet again, we're just visiting. Next week, I cannot wait to spend Saturday morning with you again. My guest will be Rich Binder, the owner of Philippe's. We're going to talk about the French dip in art, in sports, and in surgery. And thanks so much for listening, telling all your friends. I leave you with volare, which means I'm singing and I'm flying in Italian. But in English, it means I'll see you on the radio. Until next week, have a great week. Nel cielo infinito.